Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Uh, this past weekend, I was out with my wife and children backpacking in the Rockies, and, and we're at a point now that the kids love backpacking, and, and my wife and I were talking about upping our game and, and looking to do bigger adventures, and, and we're not sure what those bigger adventures are, uh, but I'm really excited to have Paula and Lorenz Eber on the podcast today because they took on uh, the biggest adventure I've ever heard of with kids. They cycled over 9,000 miles, crossing 24 countries over 480 days uh, with their two daughters, who were 11 and 13 at the time. And for me, this just seems incredible, and I am super excited to welcome both of you to the podcast. Hi, Lorenz. Hi, Paula. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm great, and I just can't wait to hear about this because it's something that's on my bucket list, you know, to get my kids more involved in the outdoors. They love backpacking now, and we just think, you know, what is possible with kids? And let's start at the very beginning. What led to the decision to ride around the world with your children? Like, like <laughs> how did that come about? Okay, it's totally my fault. So um, I have asthma. I'm Paula. I've had it since I was a, a baby. And my childhood was horrible. I was in the hospital a lot. I was being rushed to the emergency room. And so I spent most of sixth grade in bed, um, just trying to breathe. And all the other kids are running around having a life. And, and I would fantasize about, well, if I grow up, and that is the case for children who are very sick. If I grow up, I am going to go see the world. I'm like, absolutely going to do this. And my kids are going to have the chance to do what I didn't get to do. So I was kind of determined to have a, a life of adventure, you know, if I could just get over this asthma thing. And um, a lot of kids, when they hit puberty, do get better. I didn't get cured. I still take medications regularly, but between the good medications and so on and so forth, I got a lot more active. And then I met Lorenz, who... Who, who as a as a teenager, I had decided I, I'm from Germany originally, and as a teenager, a friend of my of mine, um, we decided to bike around uh, Germany and Holland. Well, actually, what we were trying to do was actually visit our girlfriends in southern Germany, but we hit the Harz Mountains and, and uh, couldn't get over them, and so we decided to divert over to to Holland uh, and did did a trip there. So uh, so that's when I started bike touring, you know, on a three-speed bike that I had at the time with a backpack strapped on the back. But when I met Paula, uh, she thought that was a great idea. So then we started doing a, a trip around Lake Michigan, the both of us, where Paula sewed our own panniers, you know, the bags that hang on, on our bikes. And uh, and then I created a monster, you know, because she took off from there and, and right. wouldn't wouldn't let me go anywhere else, you know, oh, except poor, on a bike. Poor, poor Lorenz. So, <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> so we spent our honeymoon in Europe biking, obviously. And then when the kids came along, we're like, well, in the trailer they go. This is just the way it's going to be. Um, so they kind of grew up thinking that this was what you did on weekends. You know, we, mom and dad threw him in a trailer and off he went to some place on a bicycle. And then the first trip we took was down the Oregon coast, which we're doing right now. We're cycling Again. From, from Seattle down to San Diego um, to talk about our book that's come out about our world's adventures, breathtaking. And um, they were three and five at the time, and they loved the tide pools and the aquarium, and there was just so much fun. And we're like, okay, this is great. And then we cycled through Alaska with them when they were five and seven. And, and at the end of the trip, Paula was like, well, what what else can we do that, you know, it's like, how, how about going around the world? And at that point, I was like, you are totally nuts. You know, worry about grizzly bears and, and things like that. But around the world seemed, yeah. seemed crazy. Right? So anyway, there's a long, short answer, long answer to your question. Um, I felt that if, you know, I knew a lot of people who fundraised and felt that if we're going to try some big adventure, it should be first of all, raise money for asthma and awareness of asthma and also clean air because that is one of the, it's increasing significantly over the last decades. And one of the major causes seems to be our air quality. And bicycling is a way to say, hey, you could, you know, travel and adventure with your family without harming the environment. It's a very nice, sustainable way to to see the world without harming um 
our environment. Yeah. And, and that's why we're doing the book tour right now on bicycle as well, because it wouldn't be really cool to show up at a bookstore and talk about your book about clean air. <laughs> so, so before you did this big bike trip, had your daughters, like what was the longest trip they had done actually riding the bike? Well, I guess it was the Alaska trip, which was 600 miles. And I think it was a month or five six weeks, weeks, six weeks. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess Anya was on a trailer bike at the time and Yvonne was still in a trailer. But she was uh, only three. Yeah. Four, no, five. Yeah, she's yeah. getting on the upper limit. So, so. so it was 600 miles was the longest thing we had done. You know, and then we had done uh, two Oregon coast trips yeah, before. So 200 each, miles yeah. each. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, it was quite a jump to go from 600 miles to nearly 10,000, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> I just couldn't imagine just making that decision. What was going through your minds as you started to think like, let's go cycle around the world with as a family? Like, was there excitement? Was there fear? Was it just how did you prepare? It was everything. And it became bigger because first we were going to just raise for um, a nonprofit organization. And then um, we realized the logistics would be better if we contained the project ourselves. So um, we live on this small island, Bainbridge Island. And I roped a bunch of colleagues and friends into this. And we founded a nonprofit called World Bike for Breath, which purpose was to educate people about asthma around the world by bicycling and it was a full nonprofit. So we had to found a nonprofit organization, fundraise. So it became like not just preparing packing bags and going on a vacation. It became an enormous business undertaking. So and the, and the logistics of the I'm an engineer, right? So the logistics of the trip, they were they were handed off to me. And it's like you figure out how we actually do this. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so and then what we came up with is that we would take two tandem bicycles, which we didn't have around the world, you know, and use panniers for the back and, and on my bike on the front. And then the whole fundraising then came to how we're going to get these bikes. And it turned out, then, then we started approaching companies. So we, we got a bunch of sponsors, uh, which was a hard thing. But in, in the end, the, the Burley company at the time, uh, they, they became our prime sponsor and they gave us two brand spanking new tandems that had to be specifically designed for this trip because tandems are generally too big to take on airplanes. And there were sections like across the Atlantic and the Pacific where we had to take an airplane. So Burley designed the tandems with S&S couplings in the frames uh, so that I could break the frame into three pieces and be able to stuff it in a bag so that we could get it on a plane or a train if we had to. So, so that, that was one of the logistic problems. Yeah. There were lots of more. Yeah. But, um, we were very lucky. We were sponsored by REI and Patagonia and a number of other outdoor companies at the time. The idea that you could adventure with children was not completely cemented. And, but these companies were at the forefront of kids should be a part of the outdoors and kids should be, you know, backpacking and biking. And so the new gear was all coming out and we got to try it all out. So, <laughs> so we, were, we were the beta testers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds incredible. Just, yeah, something as simple as getting your bike is, you know, they had to, to innovate a brand new way to create these tandem bikes. So when you're sitting in Washington state, thinking of your route, like, did you know exactly where you're going? Had you identified where you're going to stay? Or is it just kind of, you traced some ideas on a map and it was going to be figured out as you go along. What's really weird is, you know, the notion of adventure means you don't know. Even this podcast, right? We're sitting here going, well, maybe we're going to be doing it this morning. Maybe we won't. It, we don't know if there's internet. If you have to have a planned route, that's a vacation, not an adventure in the same sense, because you don't have control over what's going to happen. So we actually had originally planned the route from uh, west, you know, east to west, but the prevailing winds are the other way, flipped it around, tried to pick. I mean, we had a logic, which we wanted to only go through safe countries that weren't at war, obviously, try to avoid countries that are severely um, poor, that would be, the kids would be at risk from disease. So we didn't want to go across Africa, um, things like that. So there was a logic to the route, but the day by day was absolutely not scheduled. Uh, we had a couple of deadline points. We had to get to Moscow. The entire route was done by bicycle, except for the oceans where we flew or took a boat. Um, cause it was a fundraiser and our daughters very early on were like, 
There is no way we are doing any buses, any cars, any trains. You're not allowed to do it because my friends are watching me and they'll say I cheated. So they were very, very much the taskmasters on, you know, this is going to be all bike, <laughs> which was amazing. We did go across Russia by train. Um, we took the Trans-Siberian because that was just too much land. And, and there's no roads after Novosibirsk. So the only other way to do it would have been to wait till winter, till all the rivers froze over and then ride on the frozen rivers, you know, being chased by wolf packs and things. It's kind of a little, a little too far out there. So anyway, so we only had a few fixed dates. Like we had to be in Moscow on, I think it was October 6th or something. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, but we didn't even buy tickets ahead. We just bought a ticket to Greece and said, we'll get the next ones after that. Well, we had the, we had the Trans-Siberian right. tickets. Those right, those two, that's it. Yeah, 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 that was it. So so the route was, the, the, the main part was that it had to be in a straight line once around the world. That right? was our goal. That was our goal, and that was planned out. And Paula kept, you know, she, she put quite a bit of effort in um, trying to get the seasons correct, right? That we wouldn't end up in, in Russia in the middle of winter. And so that's why uh, once we got through China, we started dipping way south because then we caught again the summer in the southern hemisphere. So uh, it, it was choreographed, but uh, as Paula said, the day to day was, yeah, like we never knew where we were going to end up. So you guys started in Washington, you flew to Greece, and then I'm just looking at the map now. You didn't take the, the direct route from Greece. It looks like you explored a little bit. What was the plan at the start? Um, well, yes, yeah, so we went from Greece to Italy. We did take a boat. That was planned, but we were going to go along the south coast of France and avoid the Alps and then go up through France and England, um, you know, not do mountains. We were kind of squeamish about that at first. Um, we hit Italy and it was 100 degree weather. And well, was, there was the, the biggest heat wave in 100 years hit yeah. Europe. Uh, and it was obviously year. the beginning of all our heat waves that are hitting us now. It, you know, we literally getting about 4.30 a.m., biking to 10, finding a local public swimming pool and jumping in it and staying until 6 because it was too hot. So we were at Lake Garda um, at the foothill of the Alps, and Lawrence is looking on his phone, and he's like, well, well, you know, it was, it was, that wasn't the phone, it was a Blackberry, actually, yeah, at the but, time. But yeah. um, he's like, wow, over in um, Austria, it's only 84 degrees. I think we should go over the Alps. And I'm going, okay. But so we totally rerouted and said, to heck with this. We're not going to do, you know, a month at this terrible weather. And we went just straight over the Alps and went straight up north that way. So... Um, you, you know, part of being successful in adventure is being willing to totally flex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you went up, you went through, uh, it looks like Scandinavia, and then you started cycling across uh, Russia. And on your timeline, it says you, you guys were in Russia in October. And so I would think it, it could be in Siberia. Like I know it's similar to here in Canada. It can be pretty chilly in October. We got pretty lucky in Russia. The weather was still good in October. I mean, it was fall, right? But then um, in China, uh, it was at the end of October, and we actually hit a, a major snowstorm in Beijing, which wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> and that was like, uh, you know, they, they had like a, a really wet snowstorm and all the trees dropped branches. And, it, you know, it was a, you know, totally unexpected. And we were on our way to the Great Wall on bicycle. These things happen and you work around them, you know. Right, right. And I mean, we did go press Russia by the Trans-Siberian, so we didn't cycle through any snow in Russia. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I've always been interested in, in cycling in Japan. I've never met anyone who's actually done it. You guys cycled through Japan. What's it like cycling in Japan? Is it easy? Is it it's difficult? It's difficult. There's two ways you can cycle Japan. You can cycle it on the coast, which is completely developed and completely urban, and you're fighting traffic and buildings and people everywhere. Or you can just go straight up into the mountains and cycle up there, and it's completely beautiful and pristine and country-like, but the hills are really nasty. So it was always this... this um, you know, what What do you guys want to do? You want to endure some more traffic or you want to go up these steep hills and, and see nature? So we, we kind of kept going up and down and dipping back down into the valleys when we needed food and occasionally a hotel. And otherwise we stayed up in the mountains, but the cycling was very hard. Yeah. So I mean, one of the times we, one of our, uh, the island of Shikoku, 
this is when we suddenly were like, we had been trying to do along the coast, which are flatter and, and said, we're done with the traffic. And Asia is crazy to cycle in because it's mayhem for us. Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't seem to be a complete logic to traffic. There's bicycles and there's mopeds and there's cars and, and, uh, you know, Japan's more developed, but like, and you get to China and there are donkeys and there's, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're working around all this stuff. So, so we said, we're out of this. So in Shikoku, we, made an effort to, you know, we climbed up into this beautiful mountain range. And the idea was to come up the mountain range, skirt the side and pop down back into the valley again on the coast and find somewhere to stay the night. So everything's in Japanese. We don't read Japanese. And for a while, actually, our maps were in English. So you go to someone and say, where are we? And they look at the map and go, well, I can't tell you. We didn't have any GPS. And at the top of the mountain, I must have taken a wrong turn. I was navigating for that day. And um, we come down to this gorgeous valley, but it's 4 p.m. and there's supposed to be traffic and a lot of people. And instead, it's a field with beautiful, you know, a woman and a, a farm woman in the field farming radishes or whatever she was doing. And the sun's setting and we're going, uh, where's, you know, the next town? And we're trying to show her the map and she doesn't know what we're talking about. And she had dropped into a, the, the, the totally wrong valley. And, and there was no way to get out, you know, it, it, within time. It would have been another six or eight hours over another mountain range to get yeah. back to the coast. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why we camp. And you, If you're going to do a long trip, you have to carry your gear because you can't be guaranteed you're going to end up someplace where you're going to have a hotel. So finally, this postman tells us that we've fallen into the sacred valley of the, there's this Buddhist route that goes around the island of Shukoku. And there's this sacred temple at the top, Shoshanji, and that's where we are. And he and our daughter, you know, one of the wonderful things about this journey is we kind of thought, where are the parents going to bring kids along? We have to take care of them. They'll be sort of following along. But we became a team and everybody had something to contribute, including the littlest one. Yvonne was 11 and Yvonne was incredibly observant and she would see things that we see or hear things. You know, she talked to people and she just knew stuff that the rest of us had just missed. You know, she would have seen a thing back there that said there's a post office and we're going, how did you see that? Anyway, she's going, well, I talked to someone who said that Buddhist monasteries they have, um, they will take in travelers in distress. We're travelers in distress. Let's go up to this mon- monastery, Sosanji, and, and we'll stay there. And they'll, they'll give us, oh, and, and the one person I talked to said they have rooms with gold-plated taps. Of course, I'm thinking she's exaggerating a little bit. I didn't think the monasteries would have gold-plated taps. So we go to the temple of Sosanji. No, they didn't have rooms. They couldn't take us in, but they let us camp in their parking lot, which is okay. So it was great. But then... It's sunrise. It was a freezing night. Oh, it was so cold because yes. we didn't think Japan would be that cold, but we were there in November and it was very cold. Um, and the wind was blowing and it was just not a good night. But we get in the morning, there's this tinkling of bells going on as um, we wake up. And I get out to get some water in the platypus. And there's this stream of white robed people, pilgrims, hiking up the mountains. And they have these staffs with bells on the top. And the bells are tinkling as they're hiking up to the temple. And the sun is rising. And it was a moment that you can never buy on any kind of planned trip, right? This is only the thing you can have in adventures. And the girls had just popped out of the tents and they're all, you know, scruffy haired and confused and looking at these people with the white robes. And the one guy in the front comes to them with um, some Mandarin oranges and places them in their hands and bows to them and they bow back. And it was just this sense of we're both pilgrims on our own journeys and just, I'll never forget it. Just so, so getting lost isn't the worst thing. It's the moral of this story. I love that statement. We're both pilgrims on our own journeys. And, you know, I think that is for some of these big, big adventures. That's what it is. It's a, it's a journey and, and your pilgrim, you don't necessarily know where, where it's going to go, and you have to be open to experiences. And uh, uh, not many people get the experience you guys you guys get in uh, in you know the Sacred Valley in Japan. But uh, I I love that. Like, what a great experience just to happen. You know, a mistake or getting lost turns into you know one of the highlights of your trip. Yeah. Yeah. Pilgrimages are you know a human thing. It's it's part of the human condition. I mean, humans have done pilgrimages for for ages, right? I mean, the Mecca pilgrimage and and obviously the one in Chicago, and and ours is really a pilgrimage. When you do a pilgrimage, you learn about yourself. Uh, you know things that you would never uh, otherwise find out, right? 
I highly recommend to anybody to do a pilgrimage. Right. And I right. think that's why a lot of people do the, the Camino, for instance, right? And and they all come back with, with something they didn't know before. Right. You know? Yeah, you are transformed. And I think to do it as a family is extraordinary because we all learn things about each other that, you know, you're, you're put under pressure and things come out that you maybe not wouldn't know about each other or yourself um, that become a part of your family legacy and who you are as a family. So the family becomes transformed too. So I wrote that down. I just love it. Doing a pilgrimage as a family, it builds your family legacy of this shared experience. And, you know, in our lives with our kids, you know, once they start going to school, you see them on weekends and evenings around, you know, meals and, you know, they're wanting to read books or play with their friends or play video games. And to have this long trip is a way to build this kind of this family bond and this legacy. And everyone is learning new things at the same time, but they're learning different things. You four weren't on a pilgrimage, but in a sense, it was a pilgrimage. You know, it wasn't a, you know, the Camino or something like that, but it was this incredible thing to, to build your family. You mentioned traffic in Asia. And, and one thing that, you know, I, I actually, I do a lot of cycling. I've learned as I get older, I hate traffic more and more and more. And, you know, like I hate being on a busy road, even if there's a good shoulder, you know, cars going by at, you know, 65 miles an hour, just, and then when the big semis come and you get the push and the pull, it terrifies me. What was it like with your daughters, you know, each of you with a daughter on your bike, like, were you stressed out or were you able to kind of just get in the moment and, and not, not feel that stress of being on a busy road? At times it was, it was, it was stressful. Like in Italy, the roads were so tiny, you know, and, and Italian drivers, you know, and their Maseratis, I, I, you know, they like to go fast, you know? So, um, so it was stressful there. And so we always tried to get out of the traffic. The other stressful things were just, um, the way the roads were built in places, right? Like uh, there was one super scary section um, actually in Germany where we th when we went over the Alps, we thought when we went over the Brenner Pass, we were done. Actually, to then get into Germany, you need to go over the Fan Pass, uh, which is a super scary thing. There's no, it's a smaller road and there's no shoulder. I mean, maybe a f half a foot, a foot. And no guardrails and like a 2000 foot drop right at the edge of the road. So it was like, you know, I was like telling Yvonne, if you wiggle, we're dead, you know? So, <laughs> so, so you know, just holding the line was scary at times, you yeah. know? So, but there's sort of, we kind of always project our own experiences in our own country to how it'll be in others. Europe, mostly the like Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, yeah. Denmark, Sweden, they have an unbelievable bike infrastructure. And literally from Austria all the way up to the Netherlands, we basically didn't bike on a road because they have bike paths the whole way. Mm. So I would recommend if someone were wanting to do a first trip with a family, Europe. Yeah. There's so many, they have like standardized routes online now. There's the Euro Velo, one, two, three, four, five, six, you name it. Mm. Um, and they, they route you completely off traffic roads, mostly on bike paths. And when you're not on a bike path, it's a mm. road through a farmer's field. So there are ways in other parts of the world they have accommodated to bikes more. And then Asia is very unusual because they have tons and tons of bikes and mopeds. One of the things we don't understand is that the poorer the country, the more people will turn to bikes and mopeds because they can't afford a car. So you become a majority. In Beijing, they actually have... The bike lanes are bigger than the car lanes. And, and you go 10 bikes abreast during rush hour down these bike lanes. And they are literally thousands, tens of thousands of bikes. So then you're in the majority. So the cars are kind of the ones that figure out what to do, right? So, uh, and, and later, also biking in traffic in Asia, um, later on, Paula and I did a bike trip in Vietnam and, and on a tandem, on, on, on the silver tandem that we had around the world. And when I looked at the traffic first, when we got to Ho Chi Minh City, I was like, I don't think I can do this because it was just such mayhem of bikes and mopeds and cars and buses. And, but then once you get into it, uh, it, it's sort of like a video game, right? You know, you just like avoid the ball from the left and you dodge this thing on the right. And, and, and they're very good drivers because they are used to this, right? So, 
as crazy as it feels, it's actually rather safe, uh, you know, uh, because we never saw a bike accident in, in, or in Vietnam accident. Or, or a car accident for that matter. We saw lots in Germany. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, in, in, on the world ride, we never saw a bike accident and, um, and had one ourselves, never. And, but we saw five or six really bad car accidents. There's actually a picture in our book where we're biking past a car that's flipped over in Germany, you know. So, so, you know, car travel is a lot more dangerous than you think. And bike travel is a lot safer than you think, yeah. in my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so you go down through Japan, then Taiwan, then, then Thailand, and you come to the top of Australia. That looks like it would be a pretty dry ride. What was it like cycling from north to south in Australia? So actually, the map is a little deceptive. That line across Australia is an airplane. We ended up in Melbourne. But that little itty-bitty section you see there is 1,000 miles. Yeah, Melbourne to Sydney is 1,000 miles. You know, and you look at it's, it's the distortion of a map, right? Australia looks, oh, I could fit into Canada about like two or three times, right? And it's enormous. It's yeah, enormous yeah. and grueling. Yeah, so we, we didn't bike through the center of Australia. But uh, the biking on the coast from uh, Melbourne, or actually Geelong, we started in Geelong to, to Sydney, is, was the hardest part of the trip in terms of uh, biking effort. It, it was absolutely grueling. Uh, it turns out we met the um, Swiss cycling team on that road. And we're like, what the hell are you guys doing here? And, and they're like, well, it's the hardest cycling in the world. It's the end you know, of the country, hills and, and heat. And it's like, you don't have enough mountains in Switzerland to do this, you know? <laughs> so it, it's, it, because it's like, the way they design the roads, they are like 10%, 12, 13% up and down and up and down. And it's all day long like that. Yeah. And it's, it's- There's no, let's work our way around this hill and zigzag up. No. Nope. There's a hill. We're gonna go right over it. That's Australians. Yeah. We got to get from A to B straight as fast as we can. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. it, it, that's a challenge. You know, we we met we met grown men at the top of hills that were crying. <laughs> it, it was very very hard, um, but it is very empty. There were whole sections where like you just go for miles, and you'd see these eucalyptus trees, and there'd be a dead kangaroo on the side, and there are flies, flies, flies everywhere. Oh, yeah. um, um, but yeah, long, long, empty stretches. But the people made up for it. They were the nicest people. They're yeah. just, you know, like, hey, oh, you're biking, and here you want to something to drink, and here you can stay, and uh, we'll throw something on the bar before you. you know. it was so nice. So. <laughs> so after Australia, where did you go next? Tonga. No, New Zealand. Oh, New Zealand. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Well, he's excited about Tonga. It was his goal. We all had a country we wanted to see on the world trip, and we tried to fit it in. So, And his was Tonga. Yeah, I, well, I wanted to see the South Seas, an island in the South Seas. So um, after New Zealand, which was fantastic, Yeah, that's way, another great place to another, recommend. Yeah. yeah, it's a top cycling destination uh, because it's basically beautiful coastlines, not as hilly as, as uh, Australia and uh, just tons of great things to see. Yeah, and um, not many people. So again, from a family point of view, it would be a great place to take kids. So yeah. there's, I think there's 2 million uh, New Zealanders and 60 million sheep. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you get the proportion. So it's very, very beautiful rural country. Uh, and then, yeah, so after New Zealand, um, you know, I wanted to see the South Seas. I've always been, you know, I've read, you talk Contiki to Hayadal's book, and I I always wanted to see South Sea Island. So we went to Tonga, um, and that I mean it's a small island. You know, I think it took us a day to cycle. Well, around. yeah, there's a whole the chain of them, but we just did the main one. Yeah, yeah Nukualofa. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it was great. We stayed in a fale, which is like a grass hut. Uh, you know, on on the beach. Um, yeah, one story in there is our daughter gets bitten by a poisonous. Uh, uh, Malakau, which is like this six-inch-long centipede. Uh, so, it, yeah, 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 yeah. She, it's fine, and it all turns out okay. It was more scary to see the centipede than it was. Yeah, yeah. Bike. I was more scared than this, this horrible things yeah. charging at yeah. me on the on the floor. You know. Yeah, but that was one of the great things about this whole journey. I'm an anthropologist. That's partly the incentive here. Is my desire was to see the people and the cultures as they are. Not an archaeologist, which does past dead cultures, but modern cultures. 
And so my desire was to show them the real world, the one of the pe way people live and experience. And so we stayed in all these crazy places. We were in a Buddhist monastery and, and not on purpose. It was often just luck. Uh, in, Buddhist monastery in, in Taiwan. Taiwan, and we stayed in Mongolia. We stayed in the yurts of the, the nomadic people. So Anya and Yvonne saw more by the time they were 12 or 13 than probably most people will ever see their whole life long um, and met so many people from so many different walks of life. I think their perspective on, on you know, when we complain about some of our situations nowadays, particularly with COVID, it's been very hard for us. Um, you know, they've seen people who've lived in in hot grass huts without electricity, without running water. So it's mm -hmm. a very different way of realizing what hardship is. There, this, I, I, while Paula's talking, there's this cool scene that comes to my mind. We were in Taiwan and there was a street fair mm -hmm. and Yvonne, uh, she, Yvonne's a lucky girl somehow. And, and she, I don't know, she pulled like the right number or something out of a, a box and she won this giant... Panda bear doll, I yeah. think it, it was. Huge. It, it was huge. Right? <laughs> all the bicycles with this giant. So, so we have this panda bear tied to the back of our bicycle, you know, bicycling down the road, and you know, we're all like, uh, Yvonne, what are we gonna do with this panda? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and so she's like, oh, I'll figure out something out. And as we bike around this curve, we come to this house, and she sees this little girl playing in, you know in front of this obviously not very wealthy house, you know, basically it's more like a shack with a roof. And, and she's like, Hey, stop the bike. And I say, okay. And she takes the panda off the back of the bike and gives it to this little girl who has eyes just like light up and her dad comes out and hugs Yvonne. And you know, it's just a, this beautiful scene, you know, where Yvonne just said, Hey, this girl can use this panda more than I can on a bike. Right. You know? right. And, and that was something that also we traveled with very little and I mean, really little to, you know, the girls were allowed like one notebook and we would buy books and tear them into pieces. One of the Harry Potter books, we had this huge hunt for the newest Harry Potter book in the Alps and Anya and Yvonne both wanted it. We weren't going to buy two, it was three pounds, it was hardcover. And so we, you know, they're sitting there reading the book in tandem. One is a little fat, Anya's the faster reader because she was older. Yeah, there's so this they, photo where Yvonne <laughs> reads the back page and Anya reads the front page. Yeah. So, so they had nothing. I mean, they really had no personal possessions at all. And we would routinely, because, you know, particularly... Oh, she's the weight witch. She's called the weight witch because she would go through everybody's luggage and Apollo is and, and, and would take out stuff that we collect. Well, they collect rocks and sticks. And I'm like, we don't need these on our bicycles. <laughs> so, but they had very little. So for Yvonne to give this panda, which was this big toy for a child to someone else was so meaningful because she had nothing herself, mm -hmm. but she realized that she didn't need it. And this little girl could really enjoy it. Um, so those are not lessons you can teach your children on every day life in in our modern western uh you know society in canada or the u.s it's it, it's not common that kids have to live with everything in a small backpack and and realize they don't even need that so yeah. well it's 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 incredible that you know your your daughters were learning this at the ages of 11 and 13 when i started traveling you know in my early 20s i learned a very similar thing you just realize how fortunate everything is even though I was out of school, I had no money, I was living on, you know, $20 a day trying to travel and, you know, but you just say, man, I still am doing, you know, really good. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's an incredible lesson for kids to learn, like, you know, just see how they develop as they get older. Having that as a foundational experience must be so different from people that learn that once they're adults. Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's great for kids to see that this materialistic culture that we're in these things, all these things that we have, I mean, rooms full of toys, you really don't need them to be happy. I think that's sort of a lesson I, I hope that got passed down to right. our kids. Yeah, and I think that's one of the beauties of bike travel and backpacking is the same way, is the simplicity. And your life goes back to a real core set of basics. You know, um, it, you know your worries become food. Air, or, food, <laughs> shelter. Safety. Yeah, and that's, that's really it. And, and and everything else is gravy. You know, you bike for the day, and and you're hot, and you're sweaty, and you suddenly get a shower, and you're in the campground. And you're like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. 
<laughs> and you're really happy. Yeah. And and you know, we'll go out and we'll buy expensive toys or you know, think we're gonna remodel our kitchen and our lives are gonna be so much better. And actually a hot shower can give the same amount of joy. So, yeah. Um, you know, life is really about the, the yin yang philosophy, mm-hmm. right? If you have a lot of yang, you know, the hard stuff. The, I think it's yang. <laughs> you know, the, the yin is, that sounds so much better when it happens. I mean, yeah. just like if you're really hungry and you get that one cookie, you know, it's like, oh, it's just heaven, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I think that's a gift you can give your kids by taking them into the outdoors, by like making them realize that simple things give just as much joy as all the stuff on the internet. And, you know, I mean, you spend your life on Instagram these days and it's wonderful connections are made this way, but there's a sense that my life is never good enough because everything I see in those photos is better than me, but it's not about what you have or how beautiful you are or, you know, what success it's, it's about your own core being and, and experiencing this world and being with other people you love. And once you have that, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't have the diamond ring. It really doesn't. <laughs> so. uh, I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. And, and I think that's a really powerful thing. Lots of people, you know, when it's not going on a one or two week trip, you find that. But if you're out for months at a time, you realize, you know, these types of things. Your last, your last leg of the journey was going from uh, Oregon to Washington, D.C. When you're coming in to the end of the trip, are you guys ready to end? Did you want to keep going? You know, what was that? What was the feeling? I will warn someone if they're going to take a long trip, like you do a one month vacation in Europe, it's not going to be the issue. But you take a very long trip out of the country with your family. It, the reentry is going to be one of the hardest things. And we were not prepared for it. None of us. I mean, we we wanted to get back and the girls wanted to see their friends. Um, we knew we needed to get back because girls needed to go to school. We also had no money. And yeah. when we got back, we had literally zero dollars. So the there was no so, option. So I was I was actually anxious to get to work, which <laughs> never happens to me. Um, so they were very good things. But the transition from this life of all you have is a tent and a sleeping bag and a pad and a few essential items and you're a family together 24 7 we homeschooled the girls on the way and then suddenly they're in school Anya was 14 when we returned and was just starting high school um Yvonne was 12 and was went just starting middle school and those are hard starts anyway to suddenly be in this world where their friends are talking about makeup and boys and, you know, the latest, you know, movie star. And they're going, well, I was going to talk about world poverty and changing the world. And the the mismatch was very challenging. Um, Integrating these two experiences uh, has taken a long time for all of us to sort of put them together so that we have a whole life. Because for a period, it was almost like there was that life, biking, and then there's this life, and we're rushing to the swimming pool and the soccer team lessons, and, you know, you're, yeah. you know, it was really a very hard transition. Yeah, it, just just be aware of that. Re-entry after a long trip, and, and sailors know this, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it, it's very difficult because your whole perspective on life changes when you do a major expedition like this. Yeah. And... Um, Coming back, a lot of things don't make sense anymore. Like uh, after a year of coming back, Anya just came to me at some point and said, Dad, I just don't want to go to school anymore. It doesn't make sense. You know, I'm just doing these, fill out these papers and, and it's just busy work. I'd like to teach myself, you know, and, and she did. She found like this uh, charter school and where she basically made up her own curriculum. And she's now at, at Oxford uh, in England getting a PhD. So it, it didn't harm her, but it was a hard transition because, you know, she was, she just felt it was just like busy work in school and it wasn't, she wasn't gaining anything from it. Right. So it, It's interesting. You know, it's almost, you open your children's eyes to all these different possibilities. In one of your daughter's case, she's like, actually, I've realized I can learn on my own. I realize I don't want to learn just, you know, the boring stuff in in school. You know, reflecting back now, how do you think this trip changed, you know, your family as a whole or individually? Are there any downsides to doing this trip or is it just kind of all gravy in, in your point of view? It's never all gravy. I mean, you know, that's the thing when everyone dreams of adventure, right? We think that we're all just going to be happy and never cold, wet, hungry, angry, wishing we could go home and we're done. And returning from a trip is the same way. You know, it's just more, it's very hard. But I think, I mean, the upside 
as you grow and when you get through to the the part where you but the the transition it was very hard for all of us Anya and Yvonne both had a hard time getting back in school and with their friends uh, we ended up moving and changing jobs just because we sort of felt like we'd come back into this box of a life that was it's like coming back to your old clothes I don't know suppose went on a diet and lost a lot of weight and suddenly now you have to put your old big fat clothes on and don't fit anymore your life doesn't fit you it's not working for you and so it took a long time to get the clothes to shrink and the life to turn back into something that fits the you you've become so so i think what to maybe sum it up is in the short run it it was very hard you know because you had to make this transition in the long run i think it was hugely positive because uh, both Paula and I totally got into different careers uh, that were really rewarding uh, after after the trip. And the girls, too, they, they went into really rewarding fields. You know, Anya is now studying. You know, also, they were all everything was influenced by the world ride. Anya is now studying the illegal trafficking of artifacts from oh, the archaeology. Uh, so she wants to pr- protect archaeology around the world. And so her degree is in ter- criminology and she's looking at, you know, stopping the, you know, like looting of um, Iraq and stuff and, and protecting that. So she wants to protect the world's history and cultural heritage. I don't think she would have come up with that if we hadn't biked around the world. Yeah. Yvonne has gone into nursing of for um, indigenous societies. So uh, and she's getting a degree at U- University of Pennsylvania as a nurse practitioner, um, and she's going to have to do two years in a um, underserved community, which she's totally excited about. Whether because it's she's native. done that already, right? yeah, she already worked with the native um, Nooksack tribe. Um, so she wants to work with uh, indigenous communities and help them in their health policies. So, so this made them care about the world in a way that I think you can't teach from a book. And they really are passionate about, you know, making a difference and participating in their own way. Yeah, it's almost like they're aware that there's a world beyond where they live and their friends and their school. And when you're aware of these things, that's where you, you know, you can start caring about it. I've always said the reason why a lot of people don't care about the environment is they never go into it. And if you get someone to go on a on a backpacking trip and they realize how incredible that is. And that becomes part of their life. Then they start actually caring about it because they realize what it is there. And and you were able to let your your two daughters be aware of all these different cultures and people uh, uh, all over the world. Um, now I was telling tell my boys about your trip, and they had two questions. So my boys are seven, eight, and ten. And so their first question is, was it hard for them? You know, for for your daughters, was this hard riding the bike all day, but then just like being on this long trip? Uh, surprisingly, I think the biking they never really complained about. I mean, it was, obviously, we were all, it was all hard for us. I mean, we were sweating profusely. I mean, I was going up the fan pass. I was dripping sweat on my bike so bad that some of those fittings that I talked about, those, those couplings, they actually corroded so badly I couldn't take the bike apart anymore. So, so we all sweated a lot, you know, but they didn't complain about that. I think Yvonne, the little one, was, was scared sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, like in Russia. It, 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 well, she she should have been scared. It was yeah. scary. Most of the scary stuff happened in Russia, you know, and and so I think that was hard on her, you know, because that 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 made her anxious in, in, in places. Um, they were they missed friends. I yeah. would actually say the physical the thing with physical um, outdoor you build into it, and we didn't we did not like we didn't take them on this like going to do sixty mile a day trip and force them to do miles. It's a very bad approach to to outdoors with children. You go the speed they can go. So our average speed was about sixty kilometers a day, thirty five miles a day. Uh, some days were 10, some mm-hmm. days were zero, some days we had to do 60, but we really avoided them. So the physical was something they could build into, and we don't realize how strong children are. I mean, yeah. they were really strong people at the end, unbelievable. They're yeah. still big athletes, but the, it was the social and the mental that was the hardest. You know, yeah. we went through, by the time we got to Australia, it was the first country that had spoken English, except for a little period in England. So it was 20 countries we went through where they didn't speak English. So, and even particularly being younger, she would find ways to play with friends. They, she'd see a girl playing with Barbie doll and she'd come up and they would play Barbies without any language at all in common. 
Um, but you know, that's challenging. And, uh, you know, and they had the only friend was their sister. So you know how siblings are. That's great. But sometimes it's really terrible. Uh, so, <laughs> they shared a tent every night, right? You know, they had their own tent, you know, but they, they, they got along. I mean, they, they were they were fights, of course, right? But, but so that was very hard, not having other friends. And then um, we had this wonderful interview with Radio Disney when we were in Australia. And we actually have the transcript in the book. And the, the interviewer asked Anya, so, you know, what was the hardest? She said, no privacy. I can't, you know, she's just a budding teenager, 13 to 14 years old. She's like, there's nowhere I can go. I have a sister in my tent. You know, my parents are there. I can never be left alone. You and know? if I have a fight with my dad, you know, I'm sitting on the back of his bike and I can't get away from him, you know? <laughs> so, so the hard part was that kind of, you know, always being stuck with your parents, not having your friends. Um, they felt frustrated that they were disconnected from the media world, because, you know, it would be oh, yeah. they, languages. They were in Germany. They both speak German because, you know, I'm German. And they, they met these two kids in a pool in Germany uh, and, and they could obviously speak to them. And they found out all these things that they had missed. You know, you know what I, Madonna was doing or what, you know, it was just crazy. But they had felt totally out of the, the, you know, social media world scene. They didn't know what was going on. So those were the kind of harder things for them, actually, I think, in the long run was that personal social stuff, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you actually answered the second question, what did they miss most from their home life? And it was their friends, uh, which is which is interesting. It's it's the relationships, it's, you know, they weren't missing, you know, video games or toys or anything like that. It was just just their friends. You, you mentioned your book, Breathtaking. Uh, just hearing your stories, it sounds like there are some incredible stories in Breathtaking, but can you just maybe, maybe describe, you know, what caused you to write this book now at this, at this point in time? Well, there was a lot of, t I mean, we came back and our daughters needed to go to school. We figured, I mean, maybe we could have biked forever. I mean, I fantasized about that. We'll bike forever, homeschool them. Then they never would have integrated in society. So we had to get them to school. We had to get them to college. We had to do all the things you need to do as responsible parents and, and had jobs that, you know, were just working and supporting them. So there was no time, but there, there's this feeling that there's still a story that needed to be told because the journey was to raise awareness of clean air and asthma. And we did, but then things, it, COVID really set this off because, you know, you're in Canada, we're in Washington state. Uh, every year for the last five, seven years, we've had these horrible forest fires that you can't breathe for weeks. Um, our air quality was awful. And there was one day just after COVID where everyone was stuck at home and we live on an island and we, I was walking along the beach looking towards Seattle. And I was like, something's changed in this picture. And I realized there had been an orange haze that always made the mountains sort of obscure. And the city, I mean, I always thought the view was beautiful. And I realized that there was this huge smog cloud that sits right over there and probably over our island too, that I hadn't seen until nobody was going out in their cars and it all lifted. Um, and there were articles about people in New Delhi or wherever in, in India suddenly seeing the Himalayas for the first time in their lives because they weren't driving. And I, I, it, I realized that this issue of clean air has not gotten better. Yes, we made a ride around the world and we tried to do something. But I just felt, well, if we did this book and told this story um, and tried to, you know, it would be a way to get a conversation going because we're not addressing it. We're just kind of accepting it. Well, more forest fires. And I mean, you can't stop the forest fires. We've got a climate problem. It's not an easy problem to solve, but there are lots of ways we can solve the problem because they're not the main cause of air pollution. It's our cars and our vehicles. And we've chosen to live lives in which we drive to everything and we travel by car and by airplane. Um, and I just thought, well, it would be great to... To get this story out, it'd be a way to start conversations. And we're on a bike and book tour right now from Seattle down to San Diego. We're talking at our sponsor stores at REIs and Patagonias along the way. And just sort of saying, you know, there are clean airways to adventure. There are clean airways to travel that, you know, we don't have to fly to Peru and do the 10-day Machu Picchu fly to seven places. We did it. I have been it. Okay. So <laughs> thing and drive. And, you know, by the time you've left, you've consumed enough carbon to, you know, for someone who lives in that country for a year. I'm like, well, 
why don't we travel sustainably too? So, so that kind of was the impetus to get this done and get it out and get yeah. rid. And we're really ha- happy with Falcon, our publisher. Um, they do a lot of outdoor books and, and you know. We, we had, all of us had written down a lot of these stories right after we came back because it was almost like therapy, therapy you know, because you had to sort of process it for yourself, right? And so then when, when finally the opportunity came uh, after, after real life happened, you know, we, we collected them all and, and put it in the book. And, and I think it turned out really yeah. nicely, yeah. actually. Yeah. So. Paul and Lawrence, I want to I want to thank you. This has been a great just hearing these stories. Yeah. And as you've been talking, I've been thinking in my head of like, oh, what could we do that with our kids? And oh, yeah, what you know, here are all these benefits. And so uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. This is this has been great to hear all these fun stories. Thanks yeah. for having, well, thanks for having really us. And we want to hear about your great adventure hiking over the Alps with your kids soon. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we were actually talking about going wild camping and doing something like the Tour de Mont Blanc or, or half of the GR5 uh, with our kids next year. We're like, can we do it? And, you know, hearing hearing from you, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe we, we should. Yes, you can. Yeah, our daughter, actually, our daughter Anya did, did the tour, tour of Mont Blanc uh, after the worldwide herself. And uh, yeah, you can definitely do it. So um, do it. Just <laughs> jump in. I'll look for airfares for next summer on the weekend. There you go. <laughs> uh, if, if you want to know more about this incredible journey, what I'll do is I'll put two uh, URLs in the show notes. One is the original website with all your kind of updates. The second one is your new website with with information on the book. Um, uh, with with that, I really want to say uh, thanks for listening. We will be back uh, next week uh, to explore the world and hear more epic adventures on the Ten Adventures podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ten Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.